Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elvir Kozvik, Managing Director and Co-Head of Houlihan Loki's Tech and IV Advisory Practice. Uh, Elvir, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, Elver is the co-author of what I believe is a groundbreaking article on intellectual property. It's titled, Effectively Discharging Fiduciary Duties in IP-Rich M&A Transactions. And if I were to summarize this in a sentence or two, uh, it's very exciting. This is, there are a lot of IP-rich tech companies out there that are literally sitting on a gold mine in the form of non-core intellectual property and are literally giving it away for free without realizing it. The danger for them is that their shareholders and investors are realizing this uh, giveaway and they're eventually going to have to answer for it if they don't take action. Elver, before we discuss this issue, tell me how you got to this point in your career. Uh, through a number of steps, I started out as an engineer, uh, electrical engineer, uh, then got a doctorate in electrical engineering, went to teach at Yale University for a number of years. Uh, from there, I spun out a number of technologies uh, at Yale and intellectual property uh, into a series of medical device companies uh, that I founded with uh, Venture Capital. Uh, two of those were sold to Fortune 500, uh, and in that process, I learned about the value of IP in building a company and in exiting a company. Uh, the third company is still running. Uh, it's financed by uh, by Steve Case from AOL and several other funds. Uh, it's in D.C. They were in the brain monitoring business. Uh, from there, I uh, got into the IP field uh, and realized that intellectual property and technology transactions are a business for themselves. Um, <clears throat> while I was building the, the last company, I also went to law school and got a degree in um, a JD uh, with focus on M&A and, and IP. And that's where some of this interest came in to look at fiduciary duties from uh, from that perspective academically and at the same time seeing it uh, in the field. The last company I built, uh, BSIP, was acquired by Holohan Loki uh, uh, just about a couple of years ago, and that's uh, how the tech and IP group got created here. Well, the focus of your article, and we'll link to the article in our show notes on our podcast, uh, focuses on the lack of awareness or appreciation of the value of intellectual property by management, which hard to believe, but even in an M&A situation, management is not aware of all their IP. And I think you make a distinction between core and non-core IP. Uh, let's just start out. If you can distinguish what is core versus non-core IP for, for our audience, and what led you to analyze that and, and the uses of it? Sure. The main distinction between core and non-core IP is, uh, and by IP we primarily mean patents, is uh, pick a semiconductor company that has a thousand patents uh, and has uh, 15 different products across a few product lines. Odds are that much less than 50% of their patents are related to their product, are required to protect their actual products they're shipping. And the remaining 50% or more of the patents uh, are really uh, sitting on, on, on the company's books, uh, companies paying maintenance fees, 
but these patents are not directly used or unlikely to be used uh, in their uh, in their future products. So the company knows typically that there's some value there, but it really doesn't know how to extract that value in a way that doesn't make them a patent troll. And the question is, where does this non-core uh, patent value come from? It comes really from two different uh, two different areas. One is uh, that most of the, call it middle market companies, or even some of the smaller companies in, in Silicon Valley and generally in the technology field today, uh, have had a string of acquisitions. So uh, pick any company that's been around 10 or 15 years or even five years, odds are they've bought a few companies. And when they acquire those companies, usually with those companies, they acquired some intellectual property. So over time, the first way this non-core IP accumulates is through acquisitions, through prior acquisitions. The second way the non-core IP accumulates is through R&D projects that were very valuable, they were early, but for whatever reason, the company decided not to build a product there. Either because it was a, uh, the company built a platform technology and could only leverage all their resources in one little segment of that platform technology, or because they really didn't have a good market fit or, or didn't have a way to go to market, but they still have the fundamental innovation um, in the business. So those are the two main ways that uh, the, the non-core IP gets created in a company. And under this scenario, one of the ways if you're acquiring other companies, you're taking whatever their IP is, lock, stock, and barrel. You just grab all of it, whether you need it all or not. It just all comes as part of part of the deal when you buy that of the company, correct? That's right. Uh, nine times out of ten, that's the case. And this is what we published in the in the Berkeley paper you mentioned earlier. It showed up in the Berkeley Business Law Journal. Is uh, looking at the prior M&A transactions. Uh, vast majority of them do not separate uh, the IP. Now, how do we figure out this was a trend? Uh, we, we call it uh, the lucky buyers club. What happens is we get calls from sophisticated buyers who say, hey, we just bought this great company from these nice people, and they were so nice, they gifted us all of these patents that, frankly, they didn't use and we're not using. Can you please go sell these for us? Uh, so slowly, as we started working on more of these sell-side assignments from the Lucky Buyers Club, we started realizing the value uh, uh, for these patents really belongs to the shareholders of the original owner, of the seller. And at the end of the day, it's the board's job uh, to, to really review all of the pockets of value that exist um, in a company before a transaction takes place. And especially as a transaction takes uh, place, uh, the, uh, the so-called Revlon duties kick in, which change the view of the board and the focus of the board from the long-term success of the company to what the courts in Delaware called uh, board members become short-term auctioneers to generate the best short-term value for the shareholders. So this is where the, that uh, value of non-core IP becomes important to the board and the shareholders. What's the potential? I didn't even realize that you could separate it out, but if it's non-core and somebody's purchasing a company for you know their core assets, they don't care about the non-core stuff. So the core non-core IP can be segregated out. What's the potential value of that of that non-core those non-core assets? So we looked at about a thousand IP. Uh, I'm sorry, a thousand M&A transactions involving uh, technology companies hardware, software, medical devices, uh, automotive technology, and others. 
um, over the last uh, several years. So we got the data from a Pricewaterhouse uh, report, and then we went back and looked at how many patents did the uh, did the sellers have. Good news, uh, all the patent data is public, so this is relatively easy to figure out. We then looked at the sellers and how many of them did any patent transactions prior to the M&A deal. Um, it turned out uh, much less than 10%. So certainly safe to say that 90% of the deals had non-core IP and did not trade it. We then looked at how much uh, of this non-core IP that we could figure out by some you know, uh, uh, relatively simple uh, patent analytics to figure out the IP that moved from the seller to the buyer, and then the recording, the assignments get recorded, right, as the patents move from the seller to the buyer. Um, we looked at which technology areas were these patents in relative to the product set of the companies. And by doing a fairly large sample, we realized that over 50% of the M&A deals that had non-core IP, the non-core IP had at least 5 to 10% of the overall deal value, which is material by SEC standards or any other um, you know, Delaware court standard, meaning more than half of the deals in the technology space have material non-core IP uh, that was not traded uh, separately, basically was uh, in some sense gifted to, uh, to the buyer. This is consistent with our uh, observations just uh, tactically and day-to-day -day in our work where, where this is the case. Now, uh, several times uh, we've seen the value of the IP exceed the value of the business. One good example, uh, it happened several years ago, was MIPS semiconductors. Uh, those who are electrical engineers will know uh, MIPS and, 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 uh, and its history, where it came from. It's the original risk processor architecture. And they had a number of patents in, in the core business, but they had also done a string of acquisitions uh, over the years. And when it came time to sell, uh, the company was trading at about $125 million enterprise value. Uh, and the, the company had some bankers, and they tried to sell the business with the patents or without the patents. And no matter which way they split it, um, it, it they couldn't really generate any, any um, incremental value. Part of the reason is that traditional bankers are also not aware of this non-core asset. It's just not been something that's been uh, talked about a lot. So uh, in this particular case, uh, we worked hard with the board, uh, and, and I ended up getting hired by the board and the CEO to do the patent sale separate from the business sale. MIPS uh, business uh, sold, uh, JP Morgan was their banker, they sold the business to Imagination, uh, a semiconductor company in England, for $100 million. I, with my team at the time, uh, was successful in selling the patents independent of that and in a parallel process that ran at the same time for $350 million to a consortium of uh, 11, 12 buyers. So that's one example that's on the extreme. And there are a number of others where we're able to generate 10, 15, 20% of the value of the transaction, of the, of the core M&A transaction by doing a side deal on patents, either concurrently or ahead of time. That's that's just a material, as you you said, that is a material difference, and that's just sitting there. They don't have to develop anything. They don't have to do anything extra. It's just they are collecting dust for the layman out there, and uh, that that's striking. Now, there's the idea of monetizing, and your article talks about numerous strategies. There's more than one strategy for monetizing the non-core IP. 
And, and those aren't groundbreaking new ideas or revolutionary new ideas. A lot of companies have been doing it for, for a while. Uh, why is it that management, you know, hasn't glommed onto this or why hasn't this lit up management where they're, they're doing it? Because the strategies are there already and they're well understood. Uh, they are well understood, but by a small number of IP sophisticated companies. Companies like Intel, uh, Microsoft, uh, IBM, uh, it's not unusual for them to have literally hundreds of people in their IP department. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. a number of companies that we work with have a centralized IP department, and then each business unit has its own IP department. Uh, they may have 20, 30, 50 people uh, in it. And these strategies are well known amongst the most sophisticated players. However, uh, your traditional semiconductor company or medical device company, or automotive technology company, or software company, might have one head of IP or director of IP who reports to legal, and they may have you know, one or two helpers, one that writes the patents and, and, and um, uh, the other one that kind of maintains the portfolio. So there really is, the, the issue is more bandwidth. Uh, these people are already booked with their daily jobs, and there's a lot of requirements on their time. There just isn't the mantle or the physical bandwidth to undertake uh, this process of separating the core versus non-core and then transact uh, the patents. The list of buyers is very unusual. Uh, we've sold patents to all kinds of entities. Uh, so that's one reason is, is the bandwidth of, of the people who are there. They're really focused on just making money for the business and, and quarter by quarter delivering results, especially if they are, uh, if they are public. I was going to say most boards uh, are not aware of these strategies, um, and we know from talking to a number of boards, at most there may be one board member who understands IP. Uh, and what we've seen is a significant issue is uh, the public narrative around uh, patent trolls. So people have said to me, board directors at, at serious size, publicly traded companies, have said, look, I really, I really don't want us to be, you know, become a patent troll. And that basically describes a major uh, misconception that exists in the market, that the only way to make money from your patent is to, to be a patent troll. And they couldn't be further from the truth. Now, um, can somebody take their junk old patents that are useless and then go sue you know, 25 of their competitors just to extract cost of defense like a patent troll does? Yes, they can. But we don't do that, and none of our clients do that. When, when our clients decide to sell their patents, um, they follow some industry best practices where there's a reputable way to sell patents, right? One, you, you, don't, you don't just set up uh, uh, other people to just go attack your competitors. You're really just selling a complete set of patents. Two, you're not selling bits and pieces of the same portfolio, of the same technology invention to five different people who are going to launch five different lawsuits each uh, in, in the marketplace. Uh, we insist that our clients basically sell the portfolio, the, in the entire portfolio relating to a particular technology. Uh, and three, uh, a number of the buyers, as a matter of fact, most of the buyers, by far most buyers of, of the patents that we sell, uh, are, are other large operating companies. Just like I said earlier that there's the, the you know, excess non-core patents, at the same time, those very same companies, they're entering new fields, right? Some uh, uh, automotive company might be getting into uh, Internet of Things or connected cars, and they have no technology there and no patents there. You know, a medical device company might be getting into some connected medical devices or might be picking up, you know, a new heart valve or a new whatever, 
expanding their product line and they really don't have fundamental innovations there and they need to go buy some patents for defensive purposes. So about 50% of our business is buy side, 50 is sell side uh, when it comes to patents. Uh, there's a healthy market you- out there that uh, where, where patent straight hands has nothing to do with patent trolls. Gotcha. Well, earlier you mentioned with you've got the board of directors where their bandwidth is, is stretched to the limit, which unfortunately, when you, if you ever get into litigation or angry, angry shareholders, that's not a really good excuse for them. Um, they, you know, they should know everything. They should be on top of all this stuff. They've got a duty to the company to to look out for for it and everything. What could happen to management if if they don't? You know, if they continue to underutilize this non-core IP, uh, some of the, some of the outcomes they're going to be held accountable. How do you see that happening? Um, it really varies quite a bit by who the board is and how much uh, scrutiny the company is under. Where we've seen a lot of focus is from all of the activist shareholders, and and we've been on the defense side with a number of companies uh, as activist shareholders approached and then work together with the company and the activist shareholders to, to affect some of these uh, transactions. So, for example, we've uh, had an opportunity to uh, to work with Starboard Value and um, Elliott, um, LionPoint, uh, Engaged Capital. Uh, most of the large activist shareholders are very savvy about IP. So that's one avenue where, um, where management teams that are really not focused on IP uh, can be uh, a subject of a lot of scrutiny and a lot of pressure by by activist shareholders. Uh, the other one is uh, there may be board members who uh, have experience in other companies that are monetizing, and that that say, "Hey, uh, I'm on the board of these two relatively similar, you know, pick medical device companies or semiconductor, or any of those software companies, and how come in company A they make a hundred million dollars a year from their IP, uh, of which eighty million is EBITDA." And in company B that has a similar set of patents, they make zero. Why does one management team get to post a donut uh, when the other management team is posting real dollars every quarter that goes straight to the EPS? Uh, so that pressure can come from, uh, from boards uh, or management. And the pressure is on both boards and management, depending on the context uh, in which a transaction happens. Look, you can also turn this on the flip side and say, well, what about taking unnecessary risks? Uh, there was a, a, a company uh, here in Silicon Valley that uh, did the flip side of this. And rather than having many patents, they were actually infringing somebody's patent uh, and then, frankly, ignored the scope of that infringement for, for a number of years. And then when finally they were sued and lost and then settled for $500 million, the, the, uh, the, the uh, court uh, decision was the damages were over, over $900 million. What happened basically is the company lost a lot of cash and then in a way invited an active shareholder who came in and dismissed uh, the founders, uh, the board, and the management team and brought in a brand new team uh, that's not running this business. Well, I would think there's, in, in the the tone of the article uh, that you put out uh, to inform board members is to say, essentially, Here's this opportunity. You need to start taking advantage of this, or else something really bad will happen. You have a duty to protect the company, and here, here's the background and everything. I, as an optimist, I look at it as, hey guys, here's as you said, five, ten, 
20% real value that's just sitting there that's not going to cost you much to uh, to exploit and, and take advantage of. And it's just sitting there, get going. And, um, and so what I want to ask you is just for our listeners out there that are either part of an organization or know of an organization, the VCs out there that are shareholders, what's the first step they need to take, you know, to address this core non-core issue and, and get a handle on it uh, and to move forward? Sure. Um, let me just start by saying that the purpose of the paper was to lay out a pathway for the board to properly discharge uh, its fiduciary duties and to raise this issue that we've seen some shareholder lawsuits. For example, AOL sold its patents for a billion dollars but didn't tell its shareholders. So it immediately had a lawsuit from the shareholders that had sold their stock six months prior to the billion-dollar patent sale, saying, why didn't you tell me you had this asset? I wouldn't have sold my shares. Uh, so the idea was to write the paper to, to lay out a pathway to say, here are the steps to take to uh, kind of what's the right thing to do here, not just by, by Delaware law, but also what's the right thing to do uh, generally. The first step is to figure out, is there a non-core IP? You know, if, if it's a large company and they have, you know, 20 patents, maybe all 20 are used in the product and there's really not much to do there. Uh, if it's a large company and they have, you know, hundreds of patents or thousands of patents, odds are there's some non-core IP there. The second step is, uh, and this could be done through a management team or, or a, you know, a, a competent outside advisor to just figure out, is there a non-core IP or not, period. The second step is to figure out how much is this non-core IP worth. So that's typically done through an IP valuation uh, to say, what, what can we get in the market for these patents? If we sold them... Uh, to a restricted group of people, maybe we offer them first to friends and family, we offer them to our ecosystem or to our customers, uh, and then launch a broader process. What do we think is the right order of magnitude here? Are we going to get a million dollars? We're going to get a hundred million dollars? What's the, what's the scope of this deal? And then figure out, uh, is, is the value, uh, in, in, uh, selling these, uh, non-core patents or non-core IP, is it material to the overall size of the company that, that we can sell. Should we uh, launch a parallel process to sell uh, the IP? MIPS decided to do that and launch a parallel process. Yahoo decided to do that and launch a parallel process. Uh, Broadcom did not. We worked with Broadcom for many years before they sold uh, to Avago. That purchase price was $37 billion. You can imagine Broadcom has a lot of non-core patents. They're worth quite a bit, but it's really just not material uh, to the overall value of the deal. And, and um, anytime you're doing two transactions, it obviously adds a, a, a small incremental degree of complexity uh, that's unnecessary. So this is, these are the proper steps. Do we have the non-core IP, yes or no? If we have it, how much is it worth realistically in the market? And uh, given how much it's worth, what's its relative percentage to the value of the company? If it's 5 10 15% or more, then yeah, you should probably take a look at that. If not, you know, if it's down in the you know sub sub five percent, uh, it may not be worth the uh, the additional complexity in the process. And with Hulahan, you're leading Hulahan Loki's tech and IP advisory practice. And you mentioned earlier that uh, there are very few investment banks uh, or other outside experts that have experience doing these types of diagnostics, evaluations, and so forth, and help strategize. With um, 
what you guys are offering. Give us an idea, just relative cost of doing a venture like this to look into it. Sure. It depends on the number of patents and, and uh, the size of the company. Uh, we can get a project started in the just really rough numbers uh, for a smaller portfolio, say 100 patents or something like that. Oftentimes, we'll take a look at it uh, just on our own. We can, we can do the first pass analysis on a, what we call a friends and family basis. Um, if we need to figure out what the value is, uh, that valuation and the patent analytics to actually split things into core and non-core. On smaller projects, it's you know fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. On larger projects, it could be several hundred thousand. Uh, we we're not really consultants; we're bankers, uh, so we we don't want to get paid for for that work. We want to get paid on the success fee. So that's typically where where we get paid uh, is. We'll have some retainers up front, but if the company is committed to doing uh, the work and, and going through and executing a sale, then uh, typically structured with you know some uh, success fee so that when the company wins, uh, we win at the same time. So I just believe that that's, that's a very nominal investment to make. Uh, not only to, at worst case scenario, you are uh, providing protection for your your fellow board members and protection for the company just to just to go through the exercise and the upside is is virtually a no-brainer i would think yeah uh look it nothing is without risk uh, here we have taken a look at uh you know occasionally taken a look at portfolios where we just couldn't find enough value there uh, to take it to market because it was too old or too young or something like that. But we'll know that before we start a project, uh, we'll do kind of the preliminary analysis ourselves. And uh, like I said, we really want to work with clients where we where we think there's real value in the marketplace at the end of the day. And uh, we know enough about the market and, and have a team of uh, nearly 30 people just on the tech and IP practice, uh, engineers, uh, patent attorneys, IP licensing attorneys, and, and, and bankers, so that we can quickly turn through a portfolio and have a, a good feeling of whether there's something there or not. So to get started, it's really a matter of a phone call to say, hey, look, we have this uh, set of patents, and we this is the business that we're in, and this is what we're doing. Uh, you know, We'll come and take a look uh, just to evaluate whether it's worth moving forward. Well, that leads me to my last question, which for our audience members out there who are thinking just this very thing right now is uh, thinking of those couple questions. How can they reach out to you? How can they find you? Uh, very easy. Uh, we're the largest uh, bank on Wall Street that has uh, a group that deals with uh, technology and IP transactions. Today, we focused on IP. The same story applies to uh, technologies that a company has developed. Uh, you can find us at hl.com, hulihanloki.com, uh, or, uh, or by phone. It's 415-273-3616. Uh, and then, of course, all of our, the, uh, we're in the tech and IP practice. Uh, we have some case studies and other things on the, on the HL website. Okay, fantastic. And we're also going to have a, a link to this to this piece in our show notes too, so people can share uh, the great insight that you have on this. Elvier, thank you very much. I think this is probably one of the most value-packed uh, conversations I've had, just in terms of the potential value out there for 
uh, our fellow companies out here in Silicon Valley. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I think this is uh, an important message to get out there, and I really appreciate you uh, investing the time and helping us get the message out. I, I agree with you. This could be very helpful uh, helpful to folks who, who engineers like me or you know, technologists who work hard and generate real value. It's always nice to have that value recognized uh, with, uh, you know, with a nice transaction. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.